Well, good morning. My name is Steve, and I, as Ben mentioned, am the assistant pastor here for one more week. It's great to be here with all of you, and uh, in case you're wondering, this is the sort of text that you give to a guy who's not going to be around much longer anyway. And I don't think it means that Brian was afraid that he left town. I don't think that's what it is. I think that's just a coincidence. If you haven't been with us uh, until this morning, we've, we've been going through a series on First Peter, and so uh, we have to grapple with texts like this. And so uh, I hope that you can stay with us uh, throughout our discussion of this text this morning. I know that it, uh, just on the face of it, just the reading of it, uh, probably makes a lot of us uncomfortable. So I can promise you this, uh, we're going to get even more uncomfortable as we talk about it. But why don't I pray for us and we'll get started. Jesus, we need to hear your voice this morning. How will we ever comprehend the great mystery that you are the lamb of slaughter and yet you are the shepherd? What could it mean that the God of the entire universe would take on death at the hands of evil men for our sake? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, invite us into that paradox. Invite us into that mystery this morning. And may we be fed, may we find grace for even the darkest corners of our hearts. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Anyone here remember Roy James? He was a young man in his early 20s uh, during the 1960s, and obviously the 1960s here in America was a time of great turmoil and social unrest, and Roy was one of these passionate young guys. He, he had a very clear perspective on what American life should look like, and he had a lot of energy, and he was fearless about his beliefs, so fearless that he actually would attend, he attended a rally that was the antithesis of everything that he believed to be true and good in the world. And he's sitting there in the crowd, surrounded by people that are the complete opposite of him. And he's listening to the speaker just spout off all of this stuff that Roy himself couldn't disagree with more. And after a while, he had all that he could take, and he actually jumps up on stage, surrounded by people that are the exact opposite of him, and begins to punch the man speaking in the face. And the man being punched was stunned and fell backward at first as the crowd responded, obviously in horror, shrieking and screaming. Roy continued punching, watching as the blood flowed from the man's face. And as the leader of the rally regained his balance, he shouted for the crowd to be silent. And as Roy reared back for another punch, the man dropped his hands. One of the witnesses said, almost like a baby, calmly waiting for the blow to strike. And as Roy hesitated, the leader told his people, don't touch him. Don't touch him. We have to pray for him. And for the next few moments, Roy James found himself, instead of being carved up by an angry mob, rather talked to calmly by the man he had just violently attacked. 
And the truth is that really almost no one remembers Roy James. And the reason that anyone remembers Roy James is because the man that he punched on that September day was the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., Dr. King, the the foremost leader of the civil rights movement, his legacy and his achievements in the realm of nonviolent social disobedience can be traced right to this very moment, this reaction that he had toward Roy James, nonviolence in the face of aggression. But isn't it interesting that even in the act of dropping his hands from his face, opening himself up to whatever sort of damage this raging young man wanted to perpetrate, none of us would, would, would be able to stand here and say that Dr. King acquiesced. None of us would say that he is weak. None of us would say that he was one to just accept the status quo and keep quiet. I don't think it would be too much to assume that all of us here can agree that Dr. King's acts of civil disobedience were right and righteous, and that he was instrumental in the dismemberment of an evil, oppressive system. Which means that upon a cursory reading of this passage in 1 Peter, we may have some problems. Because it seems as though Peter doesn't want his congregations disturbing the status quo, doesn't it? It certainly seems as if Peter himself tiptoes around the edges of grave injustice without making waves. When we dig a little bit beneath the surface of Peter's letter, though, I think we're going to see that it's almost as if he's writing in code. It's almost as if he's a prisoner writing to his gang on the outside, and he knows the guards are going to read it, and so he has to write it in such a way as to not really get noticed. He's actually, when we start to understand the code, being incredibly subversive to the status quo, not reinforcing it. So let's get our gloves on because we have a lot of digging to do. Now, if you were here last week or as we began this sermon series, you'll remember that the text that we've been looking at that served to set up the rest of the letter, Peter has told and then retold the people he's writing to that they are living as foreigners and exiles in the world. That to be in the church means to be somehow different, somehow cut apart from the powers that be in society. But he also tells them that they should live such good lives in the midst of adversity, in the midst of exile, that the people around them will glorify God. And here in this passage this morning, he starts telling his readers what that good life will look like. It would involve mutual love among Christians, reverent fear toward God alone, honor toward the emperor, and honor toward all people. But these good lives, these lives lived in exile, are lived in paradox. Did you see that Peter tells his readers to live as free people, to live as God's slaves? For the church to exist in exile, as Peter describes here, is, as we've said all along, to exist in vulnerability, to live into that out-of-control way of Jesus, to live life in a foreign empire. And so Peter just layers and layers and layers on irony because he tells these people that they are to live as free people as God's slaves, which is itself almost ironic and paradoxical. But when you consider the fact that politically and socially speaking, none of these people were really free, they had no power. If you were to ask anyone in their surrounding culture whether they thought that this group of people were free people, they would probably tell us no. But Peter says because they've been brought into the church, because they have been formed into the community that exists in the resurrection of Jesus, that they are free But then he turns right around and tells them that that freedom looks a lot like slavery. 
And this is where things start to get a little bit strange. It's important for us to realize that Peter is using here a form of writing that would have been very familiar to people of his time period, and it's what's come to be called a household code. Household codes were based in Greco-Roman culture, where the household was the building block of the empire. They were like little microcosms of what the wider world was, was supposed to look like. As the house ran, so ran the empire. And again, it can seem to us on the surface that Peter is somehow complicit in the evils of imperialism, slavery, and misogyny. But I think what we'll see is that he's actually sowing seeds that will sprout up into such enormous trees, they will eventually disrupt and unravel the imperialism that is built upon slavery and misogyny. Well, how do we know that? Well, it begins in Peter's preface. When he tells his readers to honor the emperor and to honor all people, he is slicing directly through Roman culture. Everybody knew to honor the emperor. That's not controversial. The emperor was viewed as divine, a son of the gods fallen from heaven to earth to lead this great empire into the peace of Rome. The emperor was seen as the pater familius, the head of the household of the entire Roman empire. He was to be feared, honored, and loved. And Peter says, yeah, Honor him. Honor him just like you would honor anyone else, including slaves. Honor him like you would honor all people. You see, Peter is working out a theology that has turned his entire world upside down, that Jesus of Nazareth, the man that he called rabbi, the man that Peter came to believe and see as none other than God himself, had died the death of a criminal outcast. The death of Jesus was the death of an ant under the boot of the Roman Empire, and yet Jesus was the creator and sustainer, not just of that empire, but the entire universe. For Peter, this revelation relativizes all power claims and all relationships, because if Jesus would align himself with such desperate, down-and-out people, living among prostitutes and losers and dying a loser's death, and then as a result is given more honor than any other name, For Peter, the implications are clear. All people are to be honored, even the people that seem the lowest down on the totem pole. So the emperor should be honored? Sure. Just like the slave. That's not all that Peter does to subvert the status quo. Notice that he addresses slaves and women directly. This was incredibly subversive because in addressing these groups directly, he's elevating their status. He's assuming that they are truly free moral agents with the ability to choose and reason for themselves. This is not how the wider culture viewed, especially slaves, but also to some extent women. Aristotle himself said, the slave has no deliberative faculty at all. And yet Peter begins this passage by saying, slaves, consider this. Greco-Roman culture held that slaves were slaves by birth. They had no right to another kind of life. They were to live in fear of their masters and for their masters alone. And yet Peter tells slaves that they are to live in consciousness of God and in fear of him alone, not their earthly masters. Not only that, but considering the fact that Peter has just referred to the entire church as slaves and he calls them members of God's household, it's almost as if when he uses this term for household slaves that he's sort of winking at his readers And what he's telling us is that it's not just people who are literal, actual slaves that he's talking to, but he's highlighting the church's relationship to God, even in the midst of an antagonistic culture. 
that the church is to be the slaves of God. And we'll see the same thing to be true in a moment about his discussion of women. Peter is using slaves and women almost as analogies for how the church in exile relates to the wider world. People without power, but people who are free in Jesus. Free for what? Free to live such good lives that even the people antagonizing them will eventually glorify God. Three times in this passage, Peter tells his readers to submit. To submit to the authority structures held in place by a Roman imperial culture. And again, as I've said, it it would seem a simplistic understanding of submission would lead us to believe that Peter's commands here are actually showing us a deep contradiction between his way and the way of someone like Dr. King or Rosa Parks and civil disobedience. But when Peter tells his readers to submit, he is not saying, keep your head down and power through it. He's not even saying, don't make waves. In fact, he's hastening back to the phrase that we looked at last week, abstain from fleshly desires. Abstain from those desires that well up within you to retaliate and to fight power with power. His word for submit actually has a connotation of withdraw. It's the idea of non-retaliation. It is a choice to not exercise power or defiance. As I've already pointed out, Peter, in doing this, is actually severing the base, cutting out the legs from the institutions of slavery and misogyny. Not right away. Okay? I, I get the fact that he doesn't say right away that slavery is bad. And yet when we read him in the context of his culture, we can see that it's actually this very letter where he tells slaves to submit that is going to be the undoing of slavery in centuries to come. Because he's presupposing that his readers, even in the slaves and marginalized women among them, have the freedom of choice and are deserving absolutely of the same honor that anyone would show the emperor. And what Peter means when he tells his readers to fear no one but God is that this sort of submission, this choice to not react, to not retaliate, is not rooted in the power of the empire to force obedience out of weak people. No, this choice to not react is rooted in a response to the great love of God. You see, it's exactly this call to submission that serves to unmask the hollow power of the empire, the false power of violence and coercion. Now, we're going to come back in a moment to verses 21 to 25, but we're going to skip ahead to that last section in chapter 3 this morning to deal with some other sort of troubling words from Peter. In chapter 3, Peter's addressing women who were part of the church who were married to non-believers. And again, when we read him in the context of his entire letter, we see that what he's doing and talking directly to women is he's setting them up almost as a stand-in for the entire church. The church lives in a household with non-believers in a culture that doesn't get them. He's writing to people without power who are learning how to work out their faith in the midst of a culture that doesn't understand it. And again, it seems, doesn't it seem as if Peter is trying not to stir the cultural pot to just keep women under the thumb of their husbands, keep them oppressed, keep them quiet? And yet when we understand what he's doing in the midst of his own cultural moment, I think we'll see he's doing something very, very radical. And here's what I mean. In Roman culture, religion was always transmitted through the man. And this is a very polytheistic culture. 
And what I mean that religion was transmitted through the man is that whatever family gods the man worshipped, anyone that entered his household was to worship those gods. All women, all children, all slaves would be expected to give up their gods and worship his gods. As I said earlier, the household was the building block for the empire. And so this sort of religious transmission through males in power was what would spill out over into the entire empire, which actually spilled out into that empirical, imperial cult, where the, the, the emperor himself is the head of household, but he's also seen as the god to worship. And so when Peter specifically tells women that in living a life of non-retaliation toward their husbands, that their husbands would be won over by them, not the other way around, He's actually calling them, even in the midst of saying to them that they should submit, he's calling them to disobey their husbands in the most culturally important way by not taking on their own gods, but rather continuing to worship Jesus. And when he says that their husbands may be won over without words, he is not calling for the silencing of women. Instead, he's telling them to do exactly what he's been telling the entire church to do all along. Don't react Don't get your hair up. Don't fall into a struggle for power. Live your life in consciousness of God, in the freedom of Jesus. And it's in that sort of good living that husbands, unbelieving husbands, and indeed all people in the wider world that don't know Jesus will eventually glorify God. Okay, you're saying... We, we might grant you that one. We might grant that even in telling these women to submit, he's actually calling them to disobedience because he's not telling them to give up the God of Jesus. But what about all this nonsense about like braided hair and gold jewelry and Sarah calling her husband Lord and him holding that up as a great idea? Anyone ever tried that, by the way? Asking your wife to call you Lord? No one? Let's start with that one because it's actually a bit of a funny story. This passage has given me uh, troubles for years and years and years. I never really knew, what is he talking about? Why is he acting like this is such a good thing? It seems so culturally incongruous with our times. The only time that obedience is referenced explicitly in the relationship of Abraham and Sarah is twice. And guess what? Both times, Abraham obeys Sarah. And one of those times, it's because God tells him to. And the only time in Scripture that Sarah calls Abraham Lord is when she's being a little bit snide and sarcastic. It's when she's laughing at God's ludicrous promise that they were going to have a child. Now, she chuckles, now that my Lord is as good as dead, my Lord the moldy oldie. There are times, however, that Sarah actually models submission to Abraham. And unfortunately, those times are not so funny. It's twice. When Abraham is acting like a complete non-believer, those are the women that Peter is talking to in this passage, women who are married to non-believers when he commends them to Sarah, or commends Sarah to them, rather. Twice in the Old Testament, Abraham asks Sarah to pose as his sister, endangering her so that he might stay safe from powerful men. So when Peter tells women to emulate Sarah as they relate to their own fearful, unbelieving husbands, he's saying that their lack of retaliation and lack of fear will speak the greatest witness to the peace and love that can only be found in their relationship to Jesus. And they can do this, why? Because like Jesus, they have entrusted themselves to him who judges justly. 
And when Peter says that their beauty should not come from outward adornment, he actually lists off the major signs of status within the Roman culture. He's not meddling with personal preference. He's not telling women that they shouldn't do their best to look nice or enjoy nice things. He's basically continuing the same theme of the entire letter. Don't get caught up in status. Stop trying to live out in power plays of the culture. Stop fighting back in the same way that your culture is fighting against you. Your status, if you are a part of the church, your empowerment comes from the fact that Jesus, the God of all things, has revealed himself to you, to you, and is building you up into a holy priesthood. So when Peter says to women that they should have an inner unfading beauty of a quiet and gentle spirit, he is not holding up quietness and gentleness as the ideal feminine virtues. He's holding up quietness and gentleness as the ideal Christian virtues. In fact, when he tells women that their husbands may be won over without words and that their true beauty resides in a quiet and gentle spirit, he is driving us back to the center of this text. In the center of this text, sandwiched right in the middle of Peter's discussion to slaves and women, he sets up Jesus, the God that they worship, the God of all things, in solidarity with slaves and women and all people on the margins of society. Suffering at the hands of the powerful rather than retaliating and reacting with power is commendable. Why? Because it is exactly what has been modeled in Jesus. So slaves... Don't retaliate when you suffer for doing good. Why? So as not to disrupt the power structures of society? No. Because Jesus went as a lamb to the slaughter without fighting back. That's why. Women, let your status be shown forth in quietness and gentleness of spirit. Why? Because men are talking and you shouldn't upset the power structures of the empire? No. No. Quietness and gentleness are commended to women because that is how Jesus endured death. Like a lamb to the slaughter, he did not open his mouth. He did not cry against his enemies. When they hurled their insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Do you see that Peter is describing slaves and women in the exact terms of Jesus? Said another way, Peter is describing Jesus primarily in terms of women and slaves. Jesus is the one who made himself low, made himself humble, and took on the status of slave, the status of outsider, the status of someone with no power. But Peter doesn't end there. At the end of our passage, he actually turns to those who do have power. And I don't want us to miss the damning silence of Peter towards slave owners. Do you notice that he has nothing whatsoever to say to slave owners? It's almost as if such a thing couldn't exist in the sort of eschatological church that he envisions. So instead, he ends with a short injunction to husbands. And our translation is actually fudged it a bit because he's not talking to husbands about how they relate to their wives. He's talking to husbands about how they relate to all women in their households. And what he says is, treat them with honor. And when he tells them that women are the weaker partner, he's not saying intrinsically that women are somehow weaker than men in any way. He's reminding them that culturally, women have a weaker status than men. And it's not to be that way 
in the church. That's what he's getting at. No, women and men, slaves and non-slaves are what? What does he tell the husbands? They are co-heirs with you in the gracious gift of life. When Peter tells men to treat women with honor as co-heirs so that nothing will hinder their prayers, he's not issuing a threat. It's actually much more serious than that. What he's saying is that for men of the church, for people in the positions of power and status in the world's terms, to treat other people as somehow less honorable, even less honorable than the empire, to treat them with any kind of condensation, condescension, would reveal what? It would reveal that they actually know nothing of God's grace. When he tells men to not treat their women disrespectfully, but rather to honor them as they would honor the emperor, otherwise it will hinder their prayers, he's saying, if you don't treat them with honor, you are revealing a heart that knows nothing of God, and so how can you talk to him? How could you possibly talk to a God who has given himself for you when you treat people that are weaker than you culturally and socially with disgrace? And this idea, of course, works itself outward beyond just co-ed relationships. All Christian people with power are called to treat those that have no power without smug condescension, not simply because those within the church are to show honor to all people, but because when we consider ourselves better and more important than the weak, the marginalized, the outcast, we are considering ourselves as better and more important than Jesus because he made himself weak and marginalized and outcast. There are an estimated 21 million people in slavery at this moment. More people than at any other time in history. There are churches burning in Iraq and Christian women being raped and children and families being harmed and facing a future of potentially unending, actual, literal exile from their homes. Peter is not telling us to accept that fact. Not at all. Though, frankly, I don't know what anyone sitting in this room can do to create real change on the world stage in that way. But I do know that if you're like me, we so often allow big, overwhelming, complex, seemingly unsolvable problems to take up so much space in our lives that the result is that we fail to deal with what's right in front of us. So let's deal with what's right in front of us. Christian men. How do you treat the women in your homes? How do you think about and talk to and listen to the women in your community groups, the women in this church? Do you dismiss them? Do you talk over them? Do you look down on them? Or do you treat them as co-heirs, co-heirs in the mercy that you yourself have received? Christian men and women with financial and educational resources, how do you treat the people inside or outside this church that don't have the degrees or the bank accounts or the social abilities that you have? 
Do you ignore them? Do you pander to them? Or do you treat them as one for whom Christ has died, just as yourself? Friends, living as free people, slaves of God, is only possible because Jesus, as he was being tortured and crucified, didn't retaliate, though he is all-powerful. He didn't assert his difference, though he is altogether holy and other. Instead, he entrusted himself to his Father who judges justly. Jesus bore our sins in his body. Why? So that all of us here and all the people in this city and throughout this world could be returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. And what Peter is trying to get us to understand is that the love of Jesus fills in valleys and flattens out mountains in society. And if you are his people, if you are part of his church, you have been called to what? To live as free people, slaves of God, and to go about proclaiming freedom to people who are held in captive, captivity throughout this world. That's what you've been called to do. In a moment, we're going to come to this table And we are going to taste what it is for God to become flesh, for God to become the slave of the entire world, for God to become weak and powerless. And if you're willing and able, before we do that, would you stand and confess your faith along with me? What we're doing in this confession is we're saying that regardless of how mysterious this paradox is, is that when we come to this table, we are drinking and eating in that weakness, that powerlessness, and we are asking the Holy Spirit to work that into our lives so that we can submit rightly and yet still be a prophetic witness to the world. If you're able, would you confess your faith along with me? What do you believe? We believe in the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who gathers, protects, and cares for the church through word and spirit. This God has done since the beginning of the world, and will do to the end. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Friends, this is the place where we see, pictured for us, what Peter tells us in this passage. That Christ left us an example that we should follow in his steps, that he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. And when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. That's what we're eating of this morning. We're eating the body and blood of Jesus God become man, God taking on sin for the world so that we could live in freedom. So this morning, if that's part of your story, if you can grab onto that in faith and trust a God like that, then I invite you to come forward and receive this meal. If you've been baptized into his church, regardless of whether you're a member in town, come and partake of him this morning. And yet, if that's not true of you, if you have not yet been able to grab a hold of the fact that Jesus would do something like that for you, then don't yet come. 
This meal is a renewal meal. We want it to be true of you. And I would love to talk with you about how you can come to this meal soon. We would love to see you feasting with us, but it's not yet the time. Take a hold of the prayers in your bulletin. Let's pray together for our meal. Holy Spirit, let us live in this mystery that you would make this bread and this wine to be for us the body and blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus, would you be present with us in this moment, feeding us on yourself. We find our souls resting in you and being filled by you so that we can go out into this world as your people, marked by your grace. We ask in your name. Amen.